0: Talk radio's Essential Spiritual Fitness Program on this Saturday morning, March twenty first, AD, twenty fifteen. I'm your host, Paul Rakowitz, Spiritual Fitness Coach, author, and founder of the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program, coming to you live from Highland, Michigan, as I do every Saturday morning at eleven o'clock AM. We've got a fantastic show for you this morning, as today we take a momentary break in our series looking at all the covenants of Scripture to invite special guest Carl Honiger, who is a current subscriber to the Essential Spiritual Fitness program, to share a little bit about his faith journey and his love of the Septuagint. For a little background, let's start by recognizing that for two for thousands of years, there has always been only quote-unquote one Hebrew language,
1: but in reality,
0: this Hebrew language has actually come to us in two different scripts. The exact date is unknown for certain, but it is believed that around 597 BC, the scribes began translating all the Paleo-Hebrew scrolls into Babylonian Hebrew, and the language, Paleo-Hebrew, was replaced gradually over time. Credit is given to Ezra the scribe, whom refined the letters while in exile in Babylon, thus the origin for its name, this new language, Babylonian Hebrew. Unfortunately, there are no paleo-Hebrew scrolls in existence today. It is believed that all the old scrolls in the original paleo-Hebrew disintegrated before Jesus Christ was ever born. And so, with that in mind, we have to ask ourselves this question: is the Septuagint any more a translation than the modern-day Hebrew text which we have with us? In fact, they're both a translation from the original Paleo-Hebrew language, which is no longer extant. Which means, if you want to actually study God's Word, you'll first have to decide which translation you'll use, because both of them are exactly that, translations. The one which we know of as the Bible of the Synagogue, the Masoretic Text, or the Bible of Christ's Church, the Septuagint. That's our subject today, titled... Is your Hebrew Bible original or a translation? And with that, I want to invite Carl onto the show. Carl, can you hear me?
1: Yes, I sure can. Can you hear me?
0: I can. Excellent. See, we're getting good at this. uh, First time I had somebody on, I hung up on them, and the next time I did it right, and now I've got it right two times in a row, so that's a good sign. Well, great. We're getting better at it. Well, Carl, welcome to the show. I appreciate you joining us today and looking forward to having a conversation here on the Septuagint. Um, Let me ask you a question. With the Septuagint, how long have you been engaged with the Septuagint and interested in it and working at uh, learning more and more about it? Is it something that's new and recent or is it something you've been dealing with for some time?
1: You know, I had actually... um been looking into it about a year and a half ago. I guess I was just getting into um, Well, actually I started out with reading an article on um, the uh, it was actually by James Charlesworth and he was talking about ancient manuscripts and I didn't understand what LXX meant like I kept seeing that you know come up um, and I finally started researching it more And actually, one of the people, um, Joseph Henman, I had gone to his website, but um, I didn't really know much about him. So I didn't really, what he said about the Septuagint, I didn't really know, you know, is is he a reliable person to be talking about this? But really, when you suggested um, that book about the Septuagint, um, when God spoke Greek, and I read that, that really helped me understand logic behind why the Latin church went with a um, Latin translation of the Hebrew. And it really comes down to uh, the early church fathers taught that Matthew wrote to the Hebrews. Well, if Matthew wrote to the Hebrews, what language did he use? He used Greek. So that's why, just because if the language is Hebrew, doesn't mean that it's actually what the Hebrews of that time were really reading and using. So that's really, it's a confusion that especially Protestants and um, Catholics have really been confused with. And that's exactly what um, Jerome, his argument was, was that, well, it has to be in a Hebrew language for us to understand the Hebraic thought patterns. But if we understand that, you know, Matthew and Jesus and all the other writers of the New Testament were Hebrew, too. But what did they write in? They wrote in Greek. Yes, that's so, a great starting
0: point. And, uh, that book you mentioned uh, is one that I share in the Essential Spiritual Fitness program, When God Spoke, Greek, by Michael Law, I believe is his name. Um, and yeah. that is a great book. I'm glad you read it, and I'm glad that it was helpful. You know, I read that book. A lot of times I like to read books because you read so much. A lot of times I like to read them through the uh, audio book. So that was one I listened to rather than read. Um, but it's a great report, uh, a great book, and I love that book. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, so you've been using, just just uh, speaking of the Spiritual Fitness Program, which sort of introduced you to that book, um, how long have you been with the spiritual fitness program and have you been enjoying using the spiritual fitness program?
1: Yeah, well, I've been using it since January. Um, and I, I have definitely been enjoying it. It's really good to not just get into the habit of reading, um, the, the scripture at morning and at night, but also to have the comments from, um, Church fathers that help understand um, and relate to life, because I know that. Yes. I, I remember being being told by a youth pastor once that um, anger is is always sinful, and he pointed to a verse in the Bible. And I remember reading later on in the New Revised Standard Version that what it said was actually, "Be angry, but do not sin in your anger." Right. And so, I think the early church fathers i love how they talk about cont- keeping your passions under control as opposed to just you know being completely dispassionate in a bad way kind of right. like the the Buddhists do you know where they abandon all all feelings for their family or loved ones or um and so that's that's been really helpful
0: you know, I want to say this. One of the reasons that I started the program was to help my own wife and kids and have something that they could study on through life. And then they actually wanted me to share it with people. And so I started to do that. And one of the things I found is what I just uh, – what it, one of the things I found is that I learned from the people who joined the program a great deal. And I'm reminded of that because of what you just said. Because how you just worded that and how you expressed that, I don't ever express it that way. But the way you expressed it is so dead on that I just loved it. I'd like to have that in in, in a footnote. I loved what you said about the Buddhists and all that. It isn't about, you know, dispassionate doesn't mean that we don't have emotions. Dispassionate means that our emotions don't control us. Yeah. And... That's the whole difference. And as you said, the the early church, they really grasped that, and the meditations that we have really helped teach that. Um, so I, I loved how you said that, and that's one of the reasons I like to have people on the show who are uh, subscribers because when you guys share what you're getting out of it, it's so much more, and it's uh, so helpful. Um, so I appreciate that. Now, let me tell people that you are an excellent guest because you sent me notes. I love that, <laughs> so you are well, well prepared now. I want to ask you on this first one i uh I think this is a great place to start. you uh had a note here from Friar Joseph Gleason, something on if Moses had read a copy of today's Hebrew Bible, he wouldn't be able to read it. So I want you to, if you would uh share with us that thought because. I think that most people listening would be stunned and will be stunned when they hear you talk about that because I suspect that most people think that they're reading the Hebrew that Moses wrote, and when they come to realize that that's not the case, I think that will open their eyes and give them the opportunity to maybe look at the Septuagint in a new light. So why don't you share with us that uh, beginning thing because it's That is just dumbfounding to people who have never even considered that they might not even be reading the Bible that Moses wrote.
1: Yeah, well, it was really shocking to me when I read this, because I remember Dr. Michael Brown, uh, who was a radio talk show host, had basically made the same argument um, that most Protestants make, the same Hebrew Bible, that the Masoretic text, that they had that for Um, Thousands of years But I'll go ahead and read Gleason wrote He says If Moses had a copy of today's Hebrew Bible He wouldn't be able to read it You discover a time machine You travel back to the year 1425 BC And you meet Moses face to face You tote along your Hebrew-English interlinear Bible Complete with the Masoretic text You look forward to showing Moses His own writings now in print For 3,000 years Um, transported in time. To your surprise and disappointment, Moses just shrugs at the text. You show him the Ten Commandments, yet Moses has no clue how to read it. In desperation, you focus on the most important word in the entire Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton, the all-holy four-letter name of God, Yahweh. Surely Moses will recognize the name of God. To your dismay, Moses says this word is just as foreign as everything else you've shown him. You return home disappointed the next time someone gushes with excitement about the ancient Hebrew text and the ability to read the same words Moses wrote. You don't share their excitement. You hold your peace and you meditate on God's awesome ability to preserve his truth from generation to generation, even if he has not preserved the original text of scripture. Most of the Old Testament scriptures were written in Paleo-Hebrew, which is considered to be an offshoot of the ancient Phoenician script. It represents the pen of David, the script of Moses, and perhaps even the finger of God on the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And modern Hebrew, however, is not quite so ancient. The Israelites had acquired it from Assyria somewhere around 6th to 7th century BC. This was around the same time as Israel's exile in Babylon, many centuries after most of the Old Testament was written. And so for a period of time, Jews transcribed the majority of the Old Testament using the new Hebrew alphabet while retaining the more ancient way of writing God's name. Thus, for a while, the Hebrew scriptures were written with a mixture of two different alphabets. Even after the Jews began exclusively using the new Assyrian letters to copy the text of scripture, the more ancient Paleo-Hebrew letters persisted in some corners of Jewish society. As late as the 2nd century AD, during the Bar Kokhba Revolt, Jewish coins displayed writing with the ancient Paleo-Hebrew script. Today, many people are under the false impression that the Masoretic text represents the original Hebrew, and that the Septuagint is less trustworthy because it is just a translation. But we must realize that the Masoretic text is also a translation from the Paleo-Hebrew. We no longer have original copies of the Old Testament, nor do we even have copies of the originals. We now have copies of the scriptures transliterated into modern Hebrew, edited by scribes, compiled by the Masoretes in the 7th to 11th centuries, and embellished with modern vowel points, which did not exist in the original language. And that is what we call the Masoretic text. We also have copies of the Old Testament scriptures, which are translated into Greek over a thousand years earlier than the oldest existing Masoretic text. During New Testament time, Jesus and the apostles quoted from this Greek translation frequently with full authority. He treated it as the word of God, as a faithful translation. So that's what we call a Septuagint.
0: Now, that's some amazing stuff. I, I have used the Septuagint for some time for many reasons, and these are the types of reasons, and just to share this with people is important because I doubt that many people have taken the time um, to understand what they're really reading. Just to think that if you took that old Hebrew that we have in our hands back to Moses and showed it to him and he'd look at you and say, Well, what is that? That's like chicken scratch to me. I have no idea what that is. I think that's stunning. I don't. In fact, I think that people, when they're listening to this, they've never considered that. I think they're not even going to believe it. They're going to have to go check for themselves, whether this might be true. That's how big of a shock I think it'll be to most people. And then when you touched on that, the tra- I, I, I liked how you pronounced it, but it's a tough one. Tetragrammatin. Is that right? I think
1: I pronounced it correctly.
0: That's <laughs> a tough one. So the YHWH that they've turned into Yahweh or Jehovah. And Carl, you know that there are many ministries today who insist on calling God Yahweh, or Jehovah, or some such thing as that. There's even a whole religion called Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Because they think that that is the name of God, and they don't even realize. They don't even realize that they're taking that name from a translation, or as you said, a transliteration, a translation from the original language, so they don't even have the name of God that they think that they're saying. And yeah, well, and I, Moses would not have pronounced it. Not, <laughs> <either>. <laughs> not, not as we do. That's correct. And so, you know, so when people say, "Well, what do you call God?" I call him what I call him what our scriptures call him, Jesus. That's what God's name is. And to make it more complicated than that, I don't understand because people go back into the Old Testament and they pull out this Masoretic text and they say, "Oh no, God's name is." Y-H-W-H, and they'll call him Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever it is, and I say no. I pull up my Septuagint Old Testament, and I say, look, God says his name is the Lord, L-O-R-D, Curios. And we look at that and say, that's not Y-H-W-H. Jesus wasn't referring to God when he was speaking in the New Testament uh, as recorded for us in the Gospels using the word YHWH, whatever that might be, he was simply calling him Lord, the Lord God, Theos, the Lord God, and that's what he referred to him as. And when we ask what is God's name, the answer just seems so simple. It's Jesus. And i got to ask you this. Do you have any idea, any thoughts, obviously be pure conjecture, on why people have missed such a simple truth?
1: I don't know. I think that there is definitely a hope that if you believe something so strongly that there must be evidence that, for example, the New Testament was written in Hebrew. I remember um, there was a a praetorist who had made that statement that sometime he believed that they're going to find a, Manuscript of the New Testament, and it's going to be older than the rest of the manuscripts. It's going to be written in Hebrew. Yeah, he well, still the teaches that, is, by the way. <laughs> yeah, is we don't have any. I remember asking um, the late um, Kelly Burks that I was like, "Do you have you ever heard anything? I haven't found anything online about any you know Hebrew form of like Matthew or whatever." And he's like, "There's nothing out there." So. Nor said, there. W- there never will be. Yeah.
0: Well, it's it's difficult, and, you know, uh, people, and I love how you brought up the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew first, because people say that, well, Matthew was a Hebrew, and he wrote to the Hebrews, and so he was had to use, you know, this Hebrew language, even though they don't recognize even what they're saying, that that wasn't even the language of the Old Testament when it was first written. They don't grasp that. And what I always refer them back to is, well, if you want Hebrew, if you want Matthew, to have written in Hebrew, then we've just lost the virgin birth. Because right away when he starts, when he starts his gospel message, it's undeniable that he is using the Septuagint to say that Jesus was born of a virgin. And that's what I immediately go to every time. And nobody can debate that because as soon as they look up what their Masoretic text says, they realize that the prophecies of this coming Christ in the Masoretic text does not say that he would be born of a virgin. It says he would be born of an unmarried woman. Or, I'm sorry, a young woman, not an unmarried. A young woman is what it says. So without using the Septuagint and understanding its value and understanding that Matthew is quoting from the Septuagint, we immediately lose one of the foundational doctrines of our whole faith. And that's too much for me to take. I'm
1: not willing to accept such a thing. Yeah. And and I've heard Protestants do everything they can to work around that because they have the presupposition that the MT is correct.
0: Doesn't work though, so, does it? No. <laughs> No, it doesn't. And that's great. And, you know, one of the things that uh, one of the reasons I also started the spiritual fitness program was so that when people come to the realization that, you know, I'll say it this way, a lot of people wonder, a lot of people wonder about what's going on. And a lot of people think that something's not right. And, And they think to themselves, you know, maybe the Septuagint is right and maybe it's better than this Masoretic text and they consider that, but they don't have anywhere really to turn where where they can read the Bible from the perspective that um, the Septuagint is given the honor it's due. And so one of the reasons I started the program too was so that when people come to that realization, they'll have a place to go where they can open up their Bible and be on the same page with the program and not have to translate everything that's being said. And so that's one of the reasons I started it. And I think that might be one of the reasons that um you're enjoying it because it gives you the same background that you're already open to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So now you provided some additional uh notes here in addition to the one from uh from the from uh Friar uh Joseph Gleason And so which one do you want to touch on next? Because I love the first one. I think it's a great opening to our show. So what do you want to hit next here? I I notice you have some um, from Joseph Hinman's
1: website. And who is Joseph Hinman? So he is an apologist. Um, He wrote, uh, I think you can just go to Amazon and look up his book um, by his name. And then it's like an a priori belief in God. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, he's an apologist who's written a book arguing against atheists. Um, and as part of his website, he includes a section on the Septuagint, basically saying why it's important to believe it. Um, I know that he was on the The Apologetics podcast and the Deeper Waters podcast, um, Mm -hmm. talking about his, um, belief in God. Um, And basically what he's able to do in in his website is he's able to point to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, the Samaritan Pentateuch, um, James Charlesworth has with a team of scholars translated that into English recently. But he's shown how the Samaritan Pentateuch is from an older origin than the Masoretic and that it agrees with the the Septuagint against the Masoretic texts many, many times. And same with the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are many instances where the Dead Sea Scrolls, for for the majority, show that even though they're written in Hebrew without vowels, that they're from an older origin than the Masoretic because they agree against DMT with Septuagint. So That's
0: that's that's amazing. So on his website he actually covers some of this material, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess I can read um read he, he read covers from something the- from
0: From the Institute for Biblical Scientific Studies, is that a note that that you wanted to read? Because that one looks really good.
1: Yeah, so he is quoting from the Institute for Biblical Scientific Studies, saying that most scholars saw the Septuagint as inferior to the Hebrew Bible, called the Masoretic. With this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this all changed. Ancient Hebrew scrolls, scrolls were found that followed the LXX, not the Masoretic text. But as he scrolls show that the Septuagint had an underlying Hebrew text that was different from the Masoretic text. Now, scholars think that the Septuagint has important readings that are superior to Masoretic text. The Septuagint is now very important in textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible. And so, so the,
0: that, that is itself awesome because a lot of people... Um, a lot, it's funny because a lot of people quote the Dead Sea Scrolls to prove their point, right? And yeah. what you've just done is given everyone who's listening an opportunity to go to a website of a scholar who can share with us his thoughts on what the Dead Sea Scrolls really teach. And what you're saying is that they're really demonstrating the honor we should be giving the Septuagint rather than diminishing the Septuagint, correct? Yeah, and that's... Uh, that's uh, I like how you said it. now the scholars think the LXS has important or, or has important readings that are superior to the MMT, and it's now very important in textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible that we still have all because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they're actually proving this the va- the validity of the Septuagint.
1: Yeah, and it's important to actually point out that there were fragments. Of the Septuagint found in um, Qumran, and some people will argue that, well, because because Cave Number Four is where they found a lot of the uh, manuscripts or the fragments of the Septuagint, that therefore um, this is where they stored bad copies. Um, but the thing is, is that there are Septuagint manuscripts in many other caves as well. So it's mm-hmm. evident that they didn't consider Septuagint inferior, even though most of the community there um, had the uh, Hebrew manuscripts. Yes.
0: So they had the Hebrew, but they had the Septuagint with it, and their Hebrew and their Septuagint actually lined up.
1: Yeah. Um, it, from from his website, it says that only 60% of the texts found there agree with the Masoretic text so in other words the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew um, not exactly the Paleo-Hebrew but the Hebrew without the vowels of the Dead Sea Scrolls only agrees 60% of the time with the Masoretic text and then 40% of it varies there are over uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of examples where when it disagrees with the Masoretic text it agrees with the
0: Septuagint. Yeah, and that's the amazing thing. It just leaves you dumbfounded why anybody who wants to know about God would be reading the Hebrew text or an English Bible based on it when they could be reading the actual Old Testament scriptures found in the Septuagint and or the English versions of the Septuagint uh, based, the English translations based on the situation. Um So that's another great point, and I'm glad that you covered the Dead Sea Scrolls because a lot of people use those in favor of their MSNs, and what you're saying is that's not possible, and yeah. I appreciate that note. Um, so what's your next one? Share another one with us, because I've read through these, and they're all good, and I want you to share them with the people here today.
1: So John Allegro is one of the original translation team of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he was the first to be put in charge of Cave 4. He's also the only non-religious member of the team. So he's not really coming here with um, a presupposition, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And he documents that when the Septuagint and the Masoretic texts contradict, you know, those, those uh, the um, Septuagint most often agrees with the Dead Sea Scrolls. He presents a long chart comparing readings of 1 Samuel demonstrating that the text of books other than the first five existed long before the Masoretic text. A latter article also demonstrates that the same argument holds for Jeremiah. The Dead These scrolls contain the longer reading for Jeremiah demonstrating significant support for the Septuagint. So it's really important to appeal to these experts, people who have actually been in there um, as part of translating the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah, really been well. in there and
0: seen the texts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: So that's another. Now, this John Allegro is he someone that people can find online as well? Um, I believe you could probably find him if you went to Amazon. Um, Okay, so he's probably got a book or something on this very subject.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it looks like um, the person who wrote this website, um, Mr. Henman, he actually provides the uh, pages from Allegro. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent.
0: So this is great, and it's more information that we can share with people because, you know, when, when somebody hears for the first time that, the Bible they're reading is the Bible of the synagogue and it's not the Bible of the church, number one, I suspect that it offends them and they don't believe it. Um, but over time, maybe over time, as they think about what they heard, they might say to themselves, you know, I ought to at least, I ought to at least think about it and do a little investigation to see what I'm dealing with. And if that's yeah. where they go next, which is what our hope is, Um, then you're giving them some names and some places that they can go to learn more. Uh, And that's a great thing because that's what we need to do is help people understand what we're doing here and how they can learn more about this. So what's your next one you want to share with
1: us, Carl? So the writers of the pseudepigraphal, apocryphal works. So the reason why these are important is not because we actually consider these works to be scripture, but the fact that when they do quote scripture, um, there are many instances where they quote, um, even if they are writing in Hebrew or Aramaic, they're quoting from um, either a Hebrew or Aramaic translation of the Septuagint. It compares to the Septuagint. So um, I'm guessing that you'll provide a link to um, Joseph Hemman's website, but he shows instances just some of the instances where the um, older text, the Septuagint, is used by these writers mm-hmm. when they quote from the Old Testament. Right.
0: You know, it's funny because uh, you you think to yourself, is that evidence that the Septuagint is the correct version? And and to me, it's it's absolutely evidence that that's what we're dealing with here is finding these other books that people have written and and seeing that they're using for their quotes very naturally from the Old Testament that which we find in the Septuagint. And one of the it's funny because a lot of times we when people are challenged and don't want to believe the Septuagint and they want to hold on to their Masoretic text, which as you pointed out to start is a translation of the original Bible, um, one of the things they do is, is, one of the things that you end up doing is you say, well, you know, go through the New Testament and look at all the quotes in the New Testament from the Old Testament Scripture and look at them in the Hebrew that you have, the Masoretic text, and look at them in the Septuagint and you'll be amazed to find that most of them are going to match with the Septuagint and not with the MSS. And, yeah. What, what I found is that even when people do that, Carl, and they and they go through that process, it still doesn't convince them. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wish I knew why.
1: Well, you know, I, I think especially um, as believers in fulfilled eschatology, I think it's important to point to that time period to really understand why we have the Masoretic text, because um Josephus, he does quote from um the Hebrew text sometimes, but of course, you know, he's using a, a Hebrew text they had at that time, not the one that the Masoretic um scribes have. But he also um clearly consults the Septuagint. Um yes. he's a Jew, but he writes in Greek. Yes. Um also uh, let let me read from uh this book by Lee Martin McDonald. He is president of New Testament Studies at Acadia Divinity College. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has written a lot on uh, the development of our canon and scripture that that, um, Protestants and Catholics use and his forgotten scriptures, the selection and rejection of early religious writings. And on page 109, he mentions that um, elsewhere he, he's referring to Immanuel Toll, posits that there is no standardization of the text of the Hebrew Bible in Second Temple Judaism. And the primary reason that the Masoretic texts triumphed over other texts of the Hebrew Bible current in that time is that it was adopted by the only organized group of Jews who survived the destruction of the Second Temple. So if we put that into context, what we believe as uh, leaders in fulfilled eschatology is that um, when it comes to the Hebrew Bible, like the actual Hebrew text, um, the reason why we have the Masoretic text is because of the people who survived this destruction of the Second Temple. So we're not talking about the Christians who escaped from Jerusalem. We're talking about the people who rejected Christ. Because if we truly believe that where it says in the New Testament that the gospel was preached to that whole world, to that whole um, Jewish world, then those people who survived the destruction of the temple, the second temple, the people who um, Titus specifically set up Um, these people took a text and they, for example, how you talk about the virgin birth, these people knew about Jesus and they rejected the Christians and they rejected Jesus. And so when they decided to um, transcribe and edit the Masoretic text, specifically chose a word that does not mean virgin. Right. Right.
0: Now, I love that you brought up this point because you are just right on target with what we're dealing with here uh, and right on target with understanding. You know, answer, you know I asked you the question, so how did this all come to pass and everything like that, and you're sort of answering that question, and I think you're answering it, as I understand it, correctly. I mean, you're dead on here. So what you said is you have all these unbelievers who, who – were not killed in the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and all of them said to each other, let's get a Bible, an Old Testament, in this Babylonian Hebrew, and let's start editing it so that we can continue our religion. Because even after the destruction of of Jerusalem, they didn't want to give up on their religion. They were insistent that they were going to continue to teach that Jesus had never come. And that's how they started to do that, is to, uh, as you said, get a version of the Bible and start to edit it so that when you look for the virgin birth, you can't find it.
1: Yeah. Well, and and it it took a while for them to edit it. Because Lee Martin McDonald says on page 107 that the larger Babylonian Talmud was completed at roughly 600 CE, you know, meaning AD, mm-hmm. and um, the pointing of the Masoretic text suggests that the text was completed between 650 and 750 AD. So right. it's evident that. There was no um, completed Masoretic text until 650 years to 750 years after <laughs> Christ. Right. Um, and think of the implications born. of what. Yeah, and think
0: of the implications of what you just said. Which did they finish first, their Talmud? Yeah. And
1: then
0: they then they finished the MSS based on what they wrote there. And yet people today read their bibles based on the m s s and think that they're reading the Christian old testament, and they're not I
1: and mean, we if wonder they really why want to, they 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 might as well ahead. accept the Talmud <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and well that and that's right that's the implication that's what it's based on right that's the implication and you know we go all the way back and we uh think through this whole thing, you know we have a lot of uh you you know, Carl, I'm right now in my podcast series working on the whole covenant creation idea, and that's not an idea that I agree with by any stretch, and openly I say that. Everyone knows that. And we're going to have a gentleman on uh, coming up soon, uh, Joe Daniels, who's going to talk about why he doesn't believe that and give some of his evidences. Um, he uh, is aware of our show today. He gave me a thumbs up. He loves the topic. And what happens is that these covenant creationists, they take this Babylonian Hebrew Bible, which, as you've just pointed out, wasn't put together till 650, 750 A.D., almost a 1,000 years after the birth of Christ, and they take that Bible, and what they do is they say to us that this Bible that we're using is the original that the Israelites used in the desert and that the Israelites used at the mount where God met them and gave them the Ten Commandments. And my first comment to that is, no, it's not. And so they'll give me proofs of CC based on this old, this Babylonian Hebrew text that they have in their hands, and they'll write long articles on how they prove their point. One gentleman just did this uh on Genesis chapter 6, how he proves his point from Genesis chapter 6 using the Babylonian Hebrew words that he has in his text. And at the end he said, so, you know, how about that? Can't disprove that. And my only question in disproving that was, okay, now get out your Septuagint and prove your same point in the sub- using just the Greek Septuagint. Mm -hmm. And the answer is he can't. And so my comment is, okay, so you're making a point that you can't also prove out of the Septuagint, so I reject your point completely. There's there's no point in even arguing it, because it's not even the Bible that you should be using. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the arguments that we have being made for doctrines that are new and... uh, or, or re-renewing of old heresies are being argued for and defended from the Bible of the synagogue. And even when you just point out that, you know, you can't prove that point out of the Septuagint, they don't, and this is what I asked you earlier, they don't give up on their points still. And that's the thing that I marvel at because you show them something that is better, and is more real. And I guess what I would say, Carl is, I guess if you show it to them, um, they may reject it at first, but maybe over time they'll, they'll think about it. That's all I can come up with.
1: Yeah. Who, who knows? I, I don't know exactly, um, where I, I come down on the whole covenant creation thing because it does really appeal to me. And I do, um, Really like it, because I do believe in in an old earth um, but I definitely um, i I definitely love learning about the ancient texts, and it seems pretty evident to me that the Septuagint is the one that we should be looking to um of course, you know I can't read the Septuagint because I can't read you know the exact Greek um mm-hmm. <laughs> Words the way that they are written, um, but you know, ho- hopefully someday I'll I'll be able to learn that once I I yes, my degree.
0: And you know, one of the uh, one of the nice things about having Joe Daniels on is that he is a Greek reader and a Greek writer, so he does know the Greek language, so he can help with some of that. Now, one of the things on uh, there's so much on CC, and I would say this, you know, I as everyone knows, I am a young Earth believer. Um, and I just take the Bible for what it's telling us, that God created uh, the universe, and then it unfolds over time. So I think that we're looking at anywhere from six to 10,000 years. Um, but I also always say that if you're a Christian who believes in an old earth without incorporating evolution into that old earth, but you believe that God did literally create Adam and Eve and brought, the, brought forth the human race from them, Um, then I just don't consider that something to fall apart on. I think that's okay Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of things there. Um, And so I'm okay with that. And, you know, it gets into, okay, well, what do you get out of it? And one thing I see, I'll, I'll honestly say this. One thing I see is that a lot of people who are the older style start to get into the evolution thing. Now I know that's not you, but I've seen that be an entrance into that. And, that's just circumstantial evidence, right? It's no, I'm not quoting scripture or anything, but that's something that I concern myself with. Um, But so long as somebody doesn't get into that, I just don't think it's something to be overwhelmed with. The covenant creation thing, there I am concerned for a number of reasons because uh, there's a a lot of things that are taught there that can only be taught from the Babylonian Hebrew text. So much of the theory that they have can't be taught from the Septuagint. So immediately, what I say to myself is, Jesus and the apostles, using the Septuagint as they did, they'd have never concluded covenant creation. They'd have never concluded that. And so that is something that I think about when I'm, you know, considering that subject. And that's something that you know you'll uh, keep working on as well as you look through all of those things. and All of us grow in our faith and move from this to that, so it's a good thing. And that's another reason I started the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program and focused it on growth and development of the four cardinal virtues because, you know what, you can grow in the four cardinal virtues whether you think you believe in an old earth or a young earth. And you can yeah. grow in the four cardinal virtues, whether you believe in this, that, or the other thing. So that's why I focus it on that like I do, because that's really where it's at. We need to grow in our faith and grow in our walk and learn to to walk with Christ in a better way. Um, well, we are uh, well into our hour here, so I wanted to ask you next, what would you like to cover next here? Because so far you've been a great guest and have really helped Bring forth some ideas on the Septuagint. Um, so, if you had an opportunity here to share one more thing, what would it be? Um, on
1: the Septuagint? Yeah. Um, I would say that there is also a professor, um, mess up his name, Sh- Shemare Yahu Talmud. <laughs> okay. He's a professor okay. of Bible at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He believes that the fall of Judah to the Romans and the destruction of the temple led to the fixation of the scriptures of the Jews he is correct that there was no fixed biblical canon at qumran so um that also may opens us up to um the old testament canon and looking at that and realizing that the septuagint may have some books that you don't find in your um <clears throat> your modern day king james or um your niv but you got to realize that that's because the um, Masoretic text came out of the destruction of of the temple and the fall of Judah to the Romans. And so they rejected these other, I guess you could call them, uh um, these other books. Because what's interesting is there are parts of these books that point to Jesus, prophesy about Jesus, but if you have rejected Jesus, you, of course, cannot include that in your yes. canon. And yes. so, that's one thing that um, about a year and a half ago, when I was researching the canon of the Old Testament, why we have that, I w- that was one thing that really popped out to me. It was like, wow, there are prophecies of Jesus, and yet, they have just been left out. Um like the book of Sirach, for example Was actually still used by these um, Jews who survived The destruction of the second temple It was used for a couple hundred years But mm-hmm. and as time went on In the Masoretic text um, And the Talmud was completed They dropped it out Because it did have Prophecies um, Of Jesus So
0: Damaging to their case Yes Yes. And so, well, that's also a good point. The the book we spoke of uh originally or earlier in our conversation here with God spoke Greek, the Septuagint and the making of the Christian Bible. You know, one of the things I liked about that touching on the subject that you brought up many times throughout our conversation here is that the Old Testament was in a state of flux for 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 most of its existence and one of the things that Michael Law Timothy Michael Law that's that's the author's name Timothy Michael Law um one of the things he does a great job of is demonstrating how that old testament scripture was in flux and he even goes so far as to 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 point out that there were and maybe you can correct me Carl or if you recall i think he pointed out there were two or there were four versions of the septuagint i forget which one it was And he literally goes through and demonstrates how, in the New Testament, he can demonstrate how different versions of the Septuagint were used as Scripture when the New Testament writers were quoting and teaching. And one of his points in all of that is, you know, it's interesting because if we have multiple English versions of the Bible, what his comment would be is that's probably okay because they had multiple versions of their Greek Septuagint, yeah. and they thought they were all the Bible. So, you know, we some, I think we all recognize that some of the English Bibles are better than others, um, and we all have our favorites, uh, but I think his main point is, you know, if you have different versions in English and you can learn something from this, that, and the other, uh, and piece them all together and make sense out of it, I think that's not a bad thing either. Um, so I, I think the study of of Scripture is, uh, the study of the Septuagint and Scripture and all that is amazing. And I uh, I would like to invite you back on again in the future. We never did get into the note you shared on the word ransom, L-U-T-R-O-N. Um, yeah and I'd like to I'd like to do that one day just give us a brief a brief introduction to um what you had wanted to talk about on that because that's something that I'm gonna to want to get into with you again on another day. So just give us a brief introduction of what that might conversation might entail.
1: so the benefit of the Septuagint is that you have these similar Greek words that so we have in the New Testament. And if we look at the New Testament and we read, and um, especially First Peter one seventeen through 19, um, mm-hmm. it talks that um, he's saying that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors. Well, then we go and we look at that same word. Um, I think it's pronounced litro. I'm not exactly sure, but mm-hmm. um, if you look up that word in Exodus in the Septuagint, then you realize that the way that God talks about bringing them out of Egypt was that he redeemed them. And so if you look throughout the Old Testament, um, you also see in Isaiah 35, 8 through 10, that the word redeemed um, is talked about. And he's prophesying um, a pure way shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. Um, and so he's basically prophesying about Jesus having another redemption where God redeemed his people out of Egypt. Jesus comes and he prophesies in, um, Mark ten forty-five that he is going to be a ransom for many. So that same idea is, um, Jesus and God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, Jesus is now bringing, um, the Israelites out again through his death. Out of the futile ways that they were under, yeah, and
0: now one of the reasons that i was that i was my interest was piqued on this there's many reasons, but one of them is that in the church world today that not the not the modern day preterist world, but the church world today uh I think that what they would take from all that you just said is that in Egypt at passover the people were redeemed and saved from the death angel and then they went out through the 40 year process and all that sort of thing and so they would the church world would rec- would count redemption as having occurred there at passover mm-hmm. and in these verses you just quoted um you're comparing this redemption of the cross to that redemption in Egypt Did I get that correctly or did I not get that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And And so if that's really true, you know, I I teach openly that the redemption, that the saints were atoned for at the cross, they did not have to wait 40 years for 80, 70 to come. And that puts me at odds with modern day preterism, um, because I maintain the classic Christological argument that the blood atoned for our sins immediately, it was It was shed and accepted there at the cross. And one of the things I want to do is take a look at this subject that you're raising with that word ransom, because I think it teaches, I'm wondering if it teaches that very same thing. And uh, if it does, I certainly think that that would um, be a way to
1: demonstrate this idea. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think um, there's actually a a podcast that, Um, really got me started on this by an Eastern Orthodox. And he points out um, how Eastern Orthodox view the cross. And he was pointing this out. Um, So I went ahead and did my own research and looked up other verses about the same word. And so I think that um, it can provide us hints as a But also um, just people who are not praetorists You even understand the, the praetorist view of That um, What what Jesus' Death um, Can be looked at As right. well now That Jesus has died There's a four year time period But the redemption has already happened You know the, So, so it would the be Redeemer. safe to
0: say So you would It would be safe to say that you also believe That the redemption occurred at the cross yes yeah and um and that's interesting um i certainly believe that and i teach that openly and you know we might have a we might do a we might do a show you and i just on that subject just so we could talk about that subject because that's one of my favorites can you would you do this would you be willing to um send me the link of the podcast that got you started on that word sure all right do that and i'll share that as well uh once you send it over to me um uh, because that's something that I'm interested in uh, listening to and to see what I can get out of that. Um, I love, I I think our faith is in Christ, in Christ alone, and I think that he atoned for our sins and redeemed us from sin at the cross. And I think the feast days demonstrate that because what was the high holy day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread if it wasn't a celebration of the fact that our sins would no longer be counted against us. And so uh, anything I can do to learn more about that, I certainly want to do. So if you would share that with me, I appreciate it. Um, and then I will share that as well to everyone who is listening. Um, Carl, we're sort of, uh, <clears throat> we've run out of our hour, and so I want to uh, finish up here. Um, I've enjoyed our conversation greatly. Do you have any final words you've, you've sort of uh given us a lot to think about and giving people places that they can go to investigate the idea of the Septuagint. Um, You don't claim to be a scholar of the Septuagint, which I appreciate. At the same time, you are what I refer to as an aficionado of the Septuagint, um, and I appreciate that. And uh, um, Do you have any other thoughts that you want to share with us before we end for the day?
1: You know, if people are more interested uh, they should definitely read that book by Timothy Law. Uh, but also, if you go to BibleHub.com, and whenever you choose a um, a verse from BibleHub.com, you can look up on the very far right under translations. There's a drop-down list, and you can choose the Apostolic Bible. And that will give you, if you're looking up the Old Testament, that will give you the um, Septuagint. That will give you the Greek words right underneath the English. And so I found that to be helpful if you want to do more of a word study. Excellent. um, Tell them again how to do that. So you go to BibleHub.com and then you choose a verse from the drop-down list up on the left from the Old Testament. On the very far right, the last drop-down list will be translations. You then scroll down to the Apostolic Bible. It applies to the Apostolic Polyglot, and then once you click that, your whole, um in that Old Testament will show up with the Greek words underneath the English, and you'll be able to click through and find the um, meanings of those Greek words. Yes, that's excellent.
0: Now, ever. Uh- Carl introduced that to me as well, and I've been using it since he did. And, Carl, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, Thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Um, So I want to here bring our show to an end. Carl, thank you very much. Uh, In our regular Saturday morning shows, we'll continue learning more and more about Christ's completed atonement at the cross, the harrowing of hell, and the redemption's natural result, which is how continuing in Christ's word is the means by which we can integrate him into our daily lives with a cleansed spirit and a purified conscience. Remember, in addition to everything we've shared today, I've written a couple of books that uh, you might find of interest. One is The Pearl, The Captivating Story of the Wondrous Love of God, which goes over that creation account in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and covers those chapters through the prism of the cross. I've also written a book uh, called The Virtuous Life, God's First and Great Commandment, which helps us understand how to integrate Christ into our daily lives by practicing the four cardinal virtues of discernment, self-control, courage, and right judgment. Finally, the last thing I would talk to you about, which is my first thing that I always want to talk to you about, is the Spiritual Fitness Program, which you can find at www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. And if you go there, you can engage in that same spiritual fitness program that Carl is working with and that he shared in some of his thoughts today, some things that uh, I found great to hear and learn from myself. So um, you can get started in that same program by going to www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. So I'm looking forward here, or as we look forward, make sure you mark your calendar for next week as we're putting together another fantastic show for you. So be sure to tune again next week at this same time. Thank you for joining us here today, this 21st day of March in the 2015th year of our Lord. I'm Paul Rackwitz, gratefully joined today by Carl Honigan. Thank you so much, Carl. And I am your spiritual fitness coach, author, and founder of the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program. I've enjoyed being your host and coming to you live this morning from Highland, Michigan, as I do every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock a.m., I hope you've been blessed by this show by listening in, and I ask that you while we till we meet again to be well, and that God bless you in all that you do till next time, God bless.